Good morning, and welcome to episode 627 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. So we got further information about the Yankees pitching machine that we were talking about yesterday before our Indians preview podcast. We discussed what, how embarrassing, how significant it was that Chris Young had struck out against yeah. a pitching machine. We were speculating about what this pitching machine was throwing, and there was a profile of the Yankees pitching machine in the Times today, an article by Billy Witt. And this article says that the pitching machine, which uh, is called the Hack Attack and retails for over $3,000, had uh, it was set to throw nothing but fastballs. That's dismaying if you're Chris uh, Young. Yeah, it is. And, and, and also programmed to throw almost all strikes. They did say that they would throw a few in the dirt every once in a while so that catchers would have work blocking pitches, but they were they wanted... They were focused more on the other aspects of the game, the defenders, the fielders, and the um, and the base running. They wanted everybody to get used to sort of game speed stuff. And so they were trying to really let the hitters hit. And so there was mostly strikes and all fastballs. I really, uh, I, I, I can't, I'm not sure if there's a uh, pitch FX machine in that park. And I'm not sure, I think we've talked about this once, is I don't know if the pitching mach- if the pitch FX machines are like just always on, oh, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and whatever happens to get thrown is mm-hmm. uh, you know recorded somewhere and just gets discarded uh, because nobody needs it. Yeah. Uh, but I would like to imagine that there is a pitch FX on this pitching machine, and Dan Rosenson could uh, write it up. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure there is a a threshold for velocity with pitch FX because I think I've. I've asked before about whether ceremonial first pitches get captured by pitch effects, and mm-hmm. I think they mostly don't because there is some some minimum. I don't know what it is, like forty or fifty or something miles per hour, but that's that's plenty plenty low enough for the hack attack to clear that bar. So, so yeah, you could you could probably see that. I guess pitchers are ahead of the hitters, right? And maybe pitching machines are ahead of the hitters too. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Um, anything else? This is this is a listener email show, by the way, for anyone who's listening and wondering why we're not talking about a team yet. We're doing emails. Anything you want to say before emails? No. Okay. All right. So we've got a few new ones. We've got a few from the archives that I've been saving for a while and waiting for a chance to bring out. So we'll get to some of those. Let's start with this one you like this one so we'll start with this one from dan in new jersey who says if you had to field a starting lineup using only current major league catchers who would you choose to play each position so uh one thing i discovered while thinking about this over the last 14 seconds uh via play index uh so actually before i get to that so it seems to me that Russell Martin is an obvious infielder, right? Like sure. You've got three infield positions you need to fill, three outfield positions you need to fill. You need a pitcher. 
<laughs> and you need a first baseman, but that can be anybody. And then you ideally you have left over a catcher who is a, a really good catcher, a great defensive catcher. And I don't think that will be a problem. I think there are at least seven of those guys or eight of those guys out there. So really, you don't even have to think about that. If you have any of those eight, I think you'll be safe. So um, so you need three infielders, and Russell Martin is clearly going to be one of your infielders. Yes, yeah, so you, you Having, put him at shortstop, right? Because he, he wants to play shortstop. He wanted to play shortstop in the WBC, right? And he didn't get to, but but he will on this team. You think so? See, I I think that you could put him at shortstop. Buster Posey was uh was a was a great shortstop in catcher uh, in a uh, in in college, mm. and and I still believe he probably has the skills. Uh, of course, Martin has played third base in the majors mm-hmm. uh, and played second base very 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 briefly in the minors. Uh, actually, played two innings at second even in the majors. But um, so probably just based on that, you would. Yeah, probably assume that Martin is the better choice, but Martin is also uh, years older now. He's got you know many more games caught than Buster Posey has, um, mm. and so I don't know. I I probably would put Posey uh, at second or third. Martin, yeah, probably at shortstop. Um, and then I I run out. I, I think <laughs> Robins, Robinson Chirinos might be your second baseman just because. Uh, for a brief second, you think you're reading the name Robinson Cano. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, well, you'd want Drew Butera, right? He'd be pitching for you. Oh, yes. Yeah, Drew Butera would definitely be pitching. Yeah, well, probably, although we've, we're have we ruling out... We're, we're saying that because we've seen him pitch and he's good, but uh, there is a catcher-pitcher overlap. You know, a lot of former catchers become pitchers when they flame out, or I guess a lot of pitchers who are converted from positions were catchers mm-hmm. um and so uh like we have never seen for instance yadier molina pitch but we wouldn't like that wouldn't be the guy that you would bring on in a blowout you bring drew butera because he's not worth anything to you um i think you could probably presume that a lot of these guys are would be pretty good pitchers that they'd be better pitchers than a lot of position players posey also was a, a pitcher in college a very good pitcher i'm, I'm skimming to see if anybody went the other way. I don't think anybody went the other way. Uh, but I don't have a better answer than Butera, so sure. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. trying to, I was I, just reading about the Molinas today, and I thought that, no, maybe Yadier. Did Yadier pitch in, in Puerto Rico? I can't remember. Anyway. I don't know. I did a little play index just to export catchers' heights and weights just to do uh-huh. like a height over weight thing to try to get a uh, a measure of who's the most catcher shaped not that it's the greatest metric i mean jose molina shows up as the the guy with the lowest number when you when you divide uh when you divide height height by uh by weight so that's good but you've also got just people who are are large there like would you just put Evan Gaddis in an outfield corner because Evan Gaddis plays outfield I, corner? I don't think Evan Gaddis counts. Uh, wait, does Evan Gaddis, is he still at 50%? Yeah, he counts, yeah. Yeah, he was at 70% last year. <clears throat> you would, set the minimum there. <laughs> you would definitely put Evan Gaddis in an outfield corner. I think uh, Jordan Pacheco, by the way, is your third infielder. Yeah, that's smart. So, uh, so, so you've got know. three infielders, although now you're stuck with Jordan Pacheco in your lineup, and maybe it's worth taking the hit to get um, you know, Devin Messerocco. Because you got to get Messerocco and, and McCann in in there, right? Because they're your best hitters. And Lucroy. Yeah. I guess Lucroy 
so yeah, you've got to get Luke Roy, Masarocco, and McCannon. Mm-hmm. And so that's a at best, it's a catcher, a first baseman, and a corner outfielder. So anyway, this is where my play index came in. Is then I started thinking about the outfielders, and I thought, okay, well, I'll just see who's the fastest. And no catcher stole five bases last year, which huh. seems crazy to me. It, when I was growing up, there was always a couple of catchers who would steal some bases, right? Like they'd at least steal like ten, and sometimes you'd get one that would steal like you know sixteen or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that just doesn't happen. That none stole five, and more than half last year. In fact, uh, all uh, fifty-three out of seventy-six. So well over two thirds uh, stole zero bases last year of the mm. seven of the ones who got you know played X number of games or whatever fifty games or whatever I said. Um, so uh, we are at a we might possibly potentially be at a low point for catchers stealing bases. Huh. I wonder why that is. Is this the official play index segment, or is this just a, a supplementary play index? Bonus play index. Bonus play index. Hmm. I don't know, because stolen base attempt rate is not historically low or anything, right? It's it's back up a little bit. We've talked about this. You know Raul Abanez was a catcher in the minors? Huh. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get emails from people who know the the personal histories of various catchers better than we do, and we'll know that so-and-so played such-and-such in college or whatever, and that... That alone would probably qualify some people to be on this team, but, but yeah, yeah, Jan Gomes played a little third in the minors, right? Yeah, at a at a certain point, maybe there's, I don't know how deep you can go before you're just running out guys who haven't really played anything else since little league, and at that point, you just want the best hitters in the lineup. Yeah, yeah. Probably. You'd want some range, though. I mean, it, normally you might say, ah, well, these guys... But some of these catchers are incredibly slow. I mean, some of these catchers would be historically bad in, in a position, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly Benji and Jose would have been historically bad center fielders, for instance. Right, So yeah. it's, not, it's not like you can go, oh, well, the bat makes up for it. You know, you get 20 extra runs from the bat. Because they might actually be minus 90 or minus 100 in center field. They might actually be minus 100 center fielders. I don't know if there's any way around that. Do you think there's any way around that? Well, yeah. If you've got a guy who who basically runs like an athlete, like maybe you don't waste Russell Martin at third base or shortstop. Maybe you put him in center field because Russell Mm -hmm. Martin, you know, he he runs. He stole nine bags in 2013. Well, shortstop wouldn't be a waste. But yeah, maybe maybe you don't put him at third. I don't yeah. know who are, who are the athletic looking guys. I guess like Caleb, yeah, Caleb Joseph shows up at the top of my my little body height. mass index. Yeah, my fake body mass index sort of thing. It's mostly the the shorter guys. So he's not all that short though. He's yeah. So that's that's a possibility. He's maybe not super slow. <laughs> I don't know. All right, I'm gonna set the threshold at eight stolen bases from a catcher and see. Since 1975, that was the first year ever that nobody stole eight. Nobody mm. stole eight. Nobody even stole five. Ben, I set it at eight, and that was the first year nobody stole. Uh, you know, eight. So that means obviously, it's the first year nobody stole five. Uh, mm. In 1999, there were five. Mm. Jason, were Jason Kendall. Uh, yes, he was. And then 1990, there were five. You want to name one of those five? 
Nope. Uh, Craig Biggio was who you were looking oh, for. Oh, right. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, ni- uh, 2006. You want to name one in 2006? Nah. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a great game, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah. Okay. A bunch of bad athletes. All right. Next okay. question. Okay. Next question. All right. Let's say Eric in San Francisco... Imagine for a moment that baseball sees a drastic reduction in popularity over the next few years, and the commissioner blindly decides to fix the problem by emulating the NFL schedule of one game per week and 16 games per season. How do you think the in-game strategy would change? Would you change the composition of your roster, make riskier managerial decisions, seek out lower variance hitters and avoid streaky players or the opposite? Do you think a full week's preparation for each matchup would favor pitchers? Hitters or neither? Well, did we never answer this? This one? I don't think we did. But you would, uh, you'd you'd have your, uh, you'd have, uh, you'd you'd change your roster composition certainly. And I don't know. People have talked about ways that teams could change their roster composition for a one-game wild card playoff, and this would be like that, but even more extreme. Um, I I don't know what what would you do? Would you do the the all bullpen game? At this point, there's no there's no advantage to having anyone conditioned to pitch many innings because you get six days off in between every game, so you can just yeah throw your best starter out there for one well, time through the lineup or yeah. And so the fact that there'd only be there would only exist like a hundred pitchers in the world, mm-hmm. and so a that all the games would be one nothing. And so then with that, it, it, you'd have to change your roster construction for that somehow, right? You'd have to have, uh, I would I would guess that you would almost, like, if you put somebody on base, you might pinch run every single time. Like, you might, you might carry um, uh, four pitchers, eight starting position players, and then your 13 players on your bench would involve, like, sit, like four pinch, hit, pinch runners, like just super fast Philly Hamilton type pinch runners. Because every game would be one nothing. I mean, it would be mm-hmm. insane. Like all the starters in the league would be relievers. Oh, Justin Verlander, think? in his prime, would be a reliever. Clayton Kershaw would be a reliever. They'd all be relievers. What do you think the average strikeout rate in this league would be? There, there would be so few base runners. Uh, so, um, well, as a I, percentage, what was it last year? Like twenty, a little over twenty, twenty-one percent, something like that. So, yeah, I guess it'd be like mid thirties. Like I would guess that you'd strike out between 16 and, and 19 a game mm-hmm. maybe 14 <laughs> may, 14 would be the floor <laughs> this is rob nyer's nightmare although he does like uh he likes i think pinch hitters and and fewer guys in the bullpen so maybe he'd like that yeah i mean i i do i want the baseball season to be shorter i think that that's the eventually in 50 years the, the season will be shorter and it will save the game but i'm not sure whether i think that the season should be shorter but just compressed more. So like you'd have the same, same thing. You just lop off April and, and September, or if you would have it be spread out like this. And so people maybe wouldn't get hurt as much as, as a side effect of having fewer games. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would just take, you know, Mondays and Thursdays and Friday. I don't know. I, I don't know what you do, but anyway, this doesn't sound like fun baseball to me though. This particular <laughs> schedule doesn't sound that good to me. No. And the question about whether it would favor 
whether the preparation would favor either side. Obviously, this would this would favor pitchers, but the preparation itself would probably also favor pitchers. Or I wonder if it wonder if that would even make a difference. I wonder if there's a level of advanced scouting and planning that teams are not doing right now, just in the interest of of saving time. Or whether but, they're already doing everything that, that you could possibly do to prepare well, for an opponent. Well, the thing is, Ben, that you could play in the same league as Clayton Kershaw in this scenario and face him seven times in your career. Because mm-hmm. you'd, you're only playing 16 <laughs> games, and he's only pitching uh, in those 16 games, of which most of them aren't against you. He's only pitching 30, 32 to 48 innings a year. <laughs> and so you're at best going to face him once a season. And so you just would never see the pitcher. So it would be the preparation would be more valuable to the hitter. However, the the need for preparation would I mean, not being able to see a pitcher more than once every five years would be devastating for hitters. Mm-hmm. All right. A uh, couple of questions about leagues. This is from Dave. Uh, this is an old one. Do you think Andrew Friedman moving to the NL following Theo Epstein will mark the time the NL returned to dominance over the AL? League dominance seems cyclical, and I think it's about to switch to the NL. And then another question from Kirk, who asks, from looking at the offseason, which league do you think got better, AL or NL? And I, there was one offseason where the free agent signings really seemed skewed. It was maybe a couple of years ago, and I remember writing an article about it at BP just to see if I could tell how much better one league got relative to the other. And it wasn't a lot. (laughs) It was like, I I don't know, I came up with some number that maybe it was like a two-game difference or something. But but the AL has has won interleague every year since, I don't even remember what, like 2004-ish, something like that. It's been been 12 years, maybe, I think, since the NL won in interleague, um, which is one way that you can look at league strength you can also compare league switchers guys who go from one to the other but one of the theories for why the al was dominant or has had this period of superiority was that the al had these big spending teams and the nl didn't and so the al had the yankees and the yankees were outspending everyone and therefore other teams had to spend more to try to compete with the yankees and so the talent both front office and field talent flowed from one league to the other. And if that is true, if there is anything to that, and there are other factors that could be responsible, but if it's that, then I guess you could say that that incentive or that that force is no longer really active anymore, right? Because the NL now has the team that spends the most and also happens to have a smart front office and a couple of the the best-known front office people or regimes have just switched from AL to NL. And I don't think there's been any notable imbalance in spending this winter, or at least just just eyeballing lists of top free agents and where they went. It doesn't seem like there's a very clear pattern of one league outspending the other. But if that was part of the reason that the AL had this period of superiority, then I guess you could say that maybe it will switch. Yeah, and Preller went from the AL to the NL, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another guy uh, you might note. But, yeah, I, I um, uh, Jeff Long wrote a thing this year that suggests that uh, NL pitchers 
uh, will be better than AL pitchers this year based on projected warp. And uh, that's a hard thing to say. There are a lot of different ways you can measure that, and there are so many different parts and usage and all sorts of things that it's really hard to say that that actually is definitely going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think something like five of the top six or six of the top seven or something something like that of RJ's top free agent pitchers all went from AL to NL, something like that. Mm. Um, and a bunch of the top hitters all went from the NL to the AL, so I don't, that wouldn't necessarily change uh, the overall imbalance, but you might see a... Um, you might see one the the distinction between the leagues get a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So the top three all did Shields and Lester and Scherzer all did, uh, and then uh, Irvin Santana went the other way. Uh, Brandon McCarthy went from AL to NL, but only half of it AL to NL, and at the same time, uh, Jake Peavy went NL to NL, but had been traded, and then you have. Uh, Jason Hamill is there. So, uh, yeah, it depends how you even count those, but it's like four of the top five or five of the top six or four of the top four or whatever. Anyway. Okay. Uh, all right. Question from Reza, who says, let's say at some point in the near future or alternate universe, ball clubs adopt the gospel of not bringing your best reliever, supposedly your closer in today's world, in just for the ninth inning. In this brave new world, managers will bring their best reliever at the most critical point in the game. This means that this pitcher will be going against the opposite team's best hitters at high-pressure situations. What would be acceptable standard stats for such pitchers? Presumably, they will no longer be called in to pitch against the bottom third of the lineup as much as before. Therefore, they will not have the luxury of padding their stats. So how do we judge these pitchers based on their stats? I know there are leverage index and win probability added stats. But is there any indicator that accounts for the quality of the opposition in high leverage situations? If this was going to happen, would trying to statistically place a value on these pitchers replace catcher framing as the new hot indicator to quantify? I guess maybe the more interesting aspect of that to me is if you take away saves as an incentive or a way that guys are valued, then what would you replace it with? Would there be some substitute for saves or how would you how would you judge them would you just judge them purely on strikeout rate and era or fip or whatever or is there some some other stat that you could judge a reliever on would it just switch from saves to something else what's tango has a replacement for saves what's yeah there's shutdowns and meltdowns yeah those are those are things that exist um, that is, I mean, that's one of the obstacles to, to getting rid of saves or to getting, getting the closer market or the reliever market or the free agent market off the save standard is that that's what people are paid for. So if you take away saves or if you try to use a late inning reliever in such a way that he won't get as many saves, then he's not going to be happy about that because the market is paying for saves at least theoretically. I don't know how how true that is anymore. But I don't know. You probably would want to adjust the opposition sets if the guy is always... If he's like a true fireman and he's coming in 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 high leverage situations every time, you, you could adjust by leverage. I mean, there's some debate about whether to do that or not, whether you give the pitcher credit for 
being used in those situations because even if he is even if that role is more valuable to the team is it really the pitcher accruing that value or is it just that someone was going to accrue that value and therefore this pitcher is the one who was chosen to do it so i don't know but if yeah if if i mean maybe we should be adjusting closer stats right now for their tendency to face the bottom of the lineup more often opposition stats are uh something that generally don't get mentioned unless it's one of the extremes which is uh usually fine because over a full season sample there's usually not an enormous disparity in the quality of opposition but at the top and bottom of the scale there is kind of and maybe that is one reason why closer stats look so good obviously they are very good and they are chosen because they're very good but maybe they also face weaker opposition so i don't know you probably want some sort of leverage-based thing. Yeah. Play index? Sure. Um, I wanted to find out uh, which team in, I don't know, recent history or whatever has used the fewest lefty relievers in a game, uh, in a season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was easy enough. I just went to the play index. I went to game finders. I clicked on left-handed. I clicked on as reliever. I clicked on find teams with players matching criteria, and then I just searched since first I started at 2000. And uh, then I went further back because uh, some of the things I found made me want to go further back. And so, Ben, uh, I'm going to ask you a question that you get to guess. Oh, uh, no. no, it's easy. This one, you, There's no reason for you to know it, and you don't have to think. So um, how often would you guess that a team goes an entire year without using a left-handed reliever. And it could be anywhere from five times a year in the majors to it has never happened. I don't want you to think uh, that it's a narrow range of possible guesses. Anything could be possible here. Hmm. Okay, I'll say once every five seasons. Okay, well, it happens much less frequently than that. Uh, since 2000, it's only happened once, and that was with the 2004 Brewers, <coughs> who were incidentally managed by uh, by Ned Yost, who uh, last year during the postseason we learned uh, is is not a guy who really cares all that much about platoon matchups. He generally sticks with the players that he has in his lineup uh, all game long, uh, and he gener- he didn't really care that his top three relievers were all right-handed. He didn't do a lot of fussing around with that. He basically put him in and let him fire away. And so maybe it's not a coincidence that Ned Yost managed a team that in 2004 uh, used no left-hand, left-handed relievers. Uh, they did have Jorge De La Rosa around, and he started five games as a left-hander, and you could imagine that he uh, could have been used in relief, but he wasn't. They also had Brooks Kieschnick around, who is not left-handed. However, he does bat left-handed and also played outfield for the Brewers that year. Um, and so that's how frequently it's happened since 2000. Now you would think though, that it probably happens a lot less now because left-handed relievers are so much more a part of the game than they used to be. And so I went back to 1940. Uh, actually I went back to 19, yeah, to 1940. I did go back to 1940 and amazingly the Brewers, uh, to find a team before the Brewers, you have to go to 1947. There was a almost a 60-year gap between 
two teams that uh, between the two teams that had did this, and the difference between the Brewers of 2004 and the Philadelphia Athletics of 1947 is that the Philadelphia Athletics only had 137 relief appearances total, mm-hmm. and the uh, Brewers had 423. And so it's uh, in a way. Uh, all the more surprising that teams back then weren't doing this because they hardly ever even used relievers. And uh, certainly there was no uh, such thing as a, as a loogie at the time, I don't believe. Uh, so kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, that's all the answer to one question. But where this really took me is to the 2004 Angels. Um, and the 2004 Angels uh, did not manage to join this list, as you have figured out. They had exactly one left-handed reliever make an appearance. Um, and this was a, a story kind of at the time that the Angels didn't have a left-handed reliever. The local news were writing articles about it. And Mike Sosha has said in the past that he would rather go to the better pitcher rather than the lefty. But even he acknowledged that, yeah, he would rather have a lefty. And not just because uh, have it, you, you want to have a lefty who comes out and gets the left-handed batter out. But as he described it to a reporter at the time, uh, there are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him, there are some things that having a lefty in the pen definitely helps you with in a lot of areas. Some are very subtle and some are very obvious. Whether we have one or not doesn't change the way we have to get after it and the way we have to play. Good quote, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that last one. I should have just skipped it. Uh, so I guess if your question is, can we win without a lefty in the bullpen? Sure. But he mentioned several subtle ways, including preventing the stacking of left-handed hitters in opposing starting lineup, the option to turn around switch hitters on a whim, and keeping left-handed hitter, left-handed pinch hitters out of the game. Uh, and so it is interesting that not having even the threat of one, uh, or I guess it should say having the threat of one, in subtle ways uh, forces your opponent to behave suboptimally. They will perhaps, since if their three best hitters are all left-handed, they might bat them third, fifth, and seventh instead of third, fourth, and fifth, and therefore... Uh, that one guy is going to bat 50 fewer, or, you know, yeah, 50 fewer times in the season or whatever uh, than he would otherwise. And maybe the left-handed pinch hitter doesn't bat uh, because of the threat of the reliever, even if you're not intending to use a reliever. Anyway, so uh, the guy who did get the one appearance was a guy named Dusty Bergman. Dusty Bergman uh, received the Fred Haney Award the previous spring for being the top rookie performer at spring training. He had a spring ERA of 2.08. In 2004, he had a 2.65 ERA at AAA when he was recalled in June to take the place of injured Troy Percival. And uh, that season in Salt Lake, he was very good. He had a ERA of um, 2.85. He only walked 13 batters in 73 innings, which is a phenomenal walk rate. Uh, Overall, a very competent left-handed reliever who had been pretty good in double-A before. He was a swingman uh, in double-A. He was a starter at one point in double-A. They converted him, and he was generally pretty successful as a reliever, particularly that year. And yet, they brought him up. Uh, the, it was noted in the newspaper that he was uh, finally going to give the Angels their first lefty in the bullpen. He had one outing uh, as a major leaguer in that outing. He got completely crushed. Uh, it, he gave up three runs in two innings of a blowout in which I don't know if he even faced any lefties. They just brought him in in the eighth inning. 
they were already down by like nine. And he gave up a sack fly, a wild pitch, a walk, a single, a double, a single, a fly out, a line out, a single, a pop out, strike out, and a ground out. Uh, one of the outs was a fly ball to deep center. Another one was a fly ball to deep right. Another one was a line out to short. The single was a line drive. The double was a line drive. There was not a lot going right for him. Uh, but he, um, you know, whatever he got out of it, they lost 12 to two and then they didn't use him again. Troy Percival came back two weeks later and he was sent back down to the minors having only pitched the one game. Uh, he never got called up again. And then the next year they traded him. Uh, the angels traded him for Jason Christensen. Do you remember Jason Christensen? Mm -hmm. Lefty reliever. (laughs) They traded him to the giants for Jason Christensen who pitched two, uh, three and two-thirds innings for the Angels. Uh, he was, it is hard to imagine he could possibly have been any better than Dusty Bergman was uh, before the trade. He had a 5.36 ERA for the Giants in a full season before the trade. He had struck out 17 and walked 15 in 42 innings. He was a disaster at that point in his career. He was 35 years old. The year before his ERA, was 4-5, the year before 5-1, the year before 5-4. He hadn't been good for a very long time. The Angels traded for him. They let him throw three and two-thirds innings. He never pitched again, and neither for the Giants or for any other major league team did Dusty Bergman, who was last seen playing in a German professional league. <laughs> huh. So it's essentially impossible at this point. It's, yeah, only, the, it's only happened a couple times, and with bullpens as big as they are now, it seems like it. There's no way that it could happen. You'd have to have. Well, why? Why would it? Why would it happen? Why would it not happen now? But it happened essentially almost twice in one year, just a decade ago. It could happen. Well, why not? It could happen with Ned Yost right now. Did Yost? So. Let's see. I'm trying to remember. Yost carried Finnegan. Did he have another lefty? He didn't carry Francisli Bueno. As I was expecting, I'm not. I can't remember if he carried another lefty in the, in the pen. Well, he had Duffy. Oh yeah, he had Duffy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't, things have changed even in the last decade or so. I mean, starters are still pitching roughly the same percentage of innings, and relievers are still pitching roughly the same percentage of innings. But the relievers have specialized even more, and they're throwing even shorter outings per reliever. So, I find it hard to i mean i guess well who does yost have now he's got tim collins in the infinite oh collins was there too yeah, yeah. and they Fra- had a lot of franklin life. morales yeah so uh i well it's only happened twice in the last i mean since since world war ii so it seems seems unlikely that it could happen with the era of eight-man bullpens it is extremely unlikely i think it was extremely unlikely in 2004 too and mm-hmm. it happened, uh, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't rule it out. But yeah, it's extremely, extremely unlikely. Mm. Uh, so actually, uh, maybe now is the time for Dusty Bergman to uh, <laughs> to return now that the league is ready for a pitcher like him. Yeah, could be. All right, so that's the play index. Use the coupon code BP. Get your discounted rate of $30 on a one-year subscription. Okay, question from David. Uh, I enjoyed Ben's Grantland piece on pitch framing, and it led me to ask a pretty simple question. What happens if the strike zone becomes electronically enforced in the near future? The technology exists to make this a reality, and it would seem to make the game both faster and fairer, since the perceived bias in favor of better players or players with more seniority would disappear. 
at least in terms of how balls and strikes are called. Of particular note, the current agreement between MLB and the umpires union ends following the 2019 season. Perhaps an electronic strike zone could be implemented as soon as 2020. Even more interesting, one would think that a player like Austin Hedges, whose value is primarily in his ability to frame pitches, should be promoted or dealt at full market value, presuming at least a few teams still exist who don't believe an electronic strike zone is on the horizon, as soon as possible to ensure that the team that possesses a pitch-framing-reliant player gets as much value out of that player while they still can. What do you think? Teams tend to front-run rule changes all the time, or at least that's part of the narrative for why so many teams are willing to forfeit their ability to sign international players for more than 300 k for the next several seasons. It seems to me that the possibility is distant enough and remote enough that it probably doesn't change even Austin Hedges' value appreciably right now. Would you disagree? I I would have a hard time seeing this in the next 15 years. I Yeah, I, I agree that it could be done technologically. But not right now. Uh, I... It could be, I think. No, no. I thought, uh, I don't know, maybe something's changed in the last year. But a year ago, PitchFX was not nearly reliable enough. Uh, I, don't, I wrote about it, what, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something. And, I mean, it. I there are occasional missed pitches, and that's a problem. If you miss a pitch, what would you do if the system goes down, if uh, something happens so that it's not tracked? Which... Happens, but it's on a very tiny percentage of pitches, so you you could tell the umpire to just be ready for the rare event that that happens, although that would be, be hard to expect him to actually pay attention on every pitch in that case. But I think you could do it from, I don't know, from, from what I learned when I wrote about it. I think it could be done if your standard is having it be more accurate than umpires are. I think it could be done. Are you saying that it's it's just a matter of the, the delay in processing, that it wouldn't be fast enough? No, I thought that I, I'm asking Dan right now, but mm-hmm. I thought that I remembered from around a year or so ago. I think I maybe linked to this in the thing that I wrote, uh, or maybe you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as I recall, it's not quite precise enough. That it's it's very good, but it's not quite precise enough. Uh, okay, so let's see. I have this parenthetical, though it's clear that PitchFX isn't up to the task yet, which is a link to something you wrote in April 2013. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I wrote that that it's not automatic, that it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be just the, the easiest, most automatic change. But I think, I think if your standard is perfection, it's not there yet. If your standard is as good or better than a human umpire, I think it's there yet. I mean, I... Umpires are are currently graded based on on pitch effects, and maybe a maybe an adjusted, tweaked version of pitch effects that couldn't be done easily in real time. But I think I think it's it's probably close enough. I, the, I guess the the real problem would be setting the height of the zone. That's something that's maybe not always quite precise. But then again, umpires aren't always quite precise with that probably either. So I think it it could be done, but I don't think it will be done anytime soon, so I would not value a good framing catcher any differently at this point. If he were in my system or on my roster, I would not be worried about it. But I 
Also, I hope it doesn't happen, actually. This this came up at Sloan, and we talked about it a bit, but I I think I'm officially a, a non-robot umpire strike zone person. Yeah, I am a non-strike zone person. Oh, well, yeah, you don't want any know. strike zone my, at all. My preference is no strike zone. If there's a strike zone, I am... I, I'm on the fence. Some days I'm 60-40 one way. Some days I'm 60-40 the other. I used to be 98% pro-robot. Yes. And um, and now I'm not. But, uh, by the way, the contract thing is interesting because I'm talking to Jason Wojciechowski right now. You don't actually have to keep the umpires through their contract. If, if you pay them to do their job, uh, you can tell them to stop doing their job. They, the The contract is for you to pay them, not for them to do uh, the thing that they have to provide you. And yeah. so... As... Lots of rule changes are collectively bargained, though. I'm not sure that you could just take pitch calling away from umpires unilaterally. Well, you don't think you could, huh? Jason says, I can't think of a reason why you'd have to allow the umpire to work. <laughs> uh, he says your obligation was to pay the money we could complicate the situation by the laborer counting on the work to build his reputation writer architect something like that but i don't think that would fly and then he said what i said i can't think of a reason why you'd have to allow the umpire to work now the issue though is that you do still need umpires and yes mm-hmm. uh, so if you took away their uh their most prestigious role mm-hmm. uh, they might just quit doing the third i mean they're not in this to, to umpire at third base. There's, nobody gets into the business so they could stand at third and call two tag plays a game, which mm-hmm. are overturned by replay anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to be totally pro-robot ump because I felt like accuracy and fairness was the only consideration or the paramount consideration. Um, but now I've kind of come around to the idea that that the goal shouldn't necessarily be calling the strike zone as close to the the rule book definition as possible but that you you want to take into consideration the level of interest and entertainment that you're getting and i'm not sure that the robot ump zone system is comparable cuz i i kind of think of it as akin to park effects or or ballpark construction like you could you could construct every stadium to be the same with the same dimensions and that would in a sense, be fairer. Um, a, a, a deep fly ball in one park would, would you know, be a home run in every park or not be a home run in every park, uh, for the most part, other than some elevation differences. But that would be less interesting, right? It would be a, a level of analysis and complexity that we wouldn't have anymore. And also it would take away some strategy from teams if they want to build their roster in such a way that they take advantage of their park's characteristics. They couldn't do that anymore. So it sort of strikes me as the same thing with the strike zone. It could go too far. It could be pre-Humidor Coors Field or the Baker Bowl or something where it just feels cheap and arbitrary. And you can have that with the strike zone too. Maybe it's Eric Gregg's strike zone with LeVon Hernandez in 1997. Maybe that that's too far. <laughs> that hurts the game maybe. But the way that it is now, where umpires are graded against pitch FX and there's a lot more uniformity and accuracy in the zones, it's close enough now that I think the variations actually enrich the game. And 
you can benefit from it. You can you can treat it as just an existing condition, and you can strategize. So if you want to get more strikes, you can get a good freeman catcher or develop one, or you can study umpire zones and see who has the slightly larger zones and who has the slightly smaller zones and adjust your approach accordingly. And things like the zone expanding or contracting based on the count also sort of serves a purpose in that it makes the plate appearance more even. If the if the zone gets smaller on certain counts, uh, you know, if it gets smaller on 0-2 and bigger on 3-0, then that helps the underdog in the plate appearance. It makes him more likely to come back, and it makes the plate appearance more interesting, more suspenseful. Yeah, you have actually talked me into robot umps. <laughs> okay. what, what did I say? Well, your your park factors analogy is, I find it uh, to be uh, disagreeable because it is, it is, it is as though you have. It's like saying uh, that it would be cool if some parks did not adhere to rules about what parks have to adhere to, like um, like if uh, if in some parks third base was just eighty two feet away, right? Like, well, it'd, yeah, be that... local, it'd be local color. There's a rule that says 90 feet, and there's a rule for the strike zone. So as long as you have the rules for the strike zone, like if you want to make the rules more permissive, then that's fine with me. And that is literally m- fine with me. That is my, my, my suggestion is to make them as permissive as the umpire wants them to be. However, uh, as long as you have a set of rules and you're not arguing that you should throw out the rule book, as long as you have a set of rules, it seems crazy to me that they're arbitrarily chosen, uh, with, uh, that the enforcement of them is arbitrarily decided, and that the players who are kind of given instructions about how to play the game according to the rules can't count on the rules enforcers to enforce them with any particular consistency. I mean, it's one thing if the, you know, if, if some arbitrariness or randomness seeps into the game. That is the game. However, these are explicitly the rules enforcers. And we are saying that we are happy with them specifically not enforcing the rules. That feels kind of weird to me. So, uh, well, I'm happy I, with I, them. I agree that I, I like you enjoy the game within the game that uh, that we observe with catchers and to some degree with hitters. And so I also would feel like I would lose something. However, I don't know that that holds up as an argument that apply that should apply to all baseball fans or to the sport as a whole. Hmm. I want them to apply the rules consistently to the best of their human imperfect abilities, but I think the game would actually be worse if they were perfect. So why not the Rob Nyer argument uh, about, well, if you want some umpire air, why not take away their contact lenses? Why not make them do it with one eye closed? Why? I mean, how do you know you have just the right amount of human air? Maybe, maybe more human air would be better. Uh-huh. Yeah, well... As I said, it it can go too far. So if if the park effects get out of control, then you do something. You you install a humidor so that it's not so crazy because it it was out of control where it just felt like you know the offense was so extreme in certain places that it was changing the game or putting certain teams at a disadvantage, or it just felt cheap when someone hit well, um, and you could have that situation with the strike zone, and maybe we did have that situation with the strike zone before a few years ago, before there was 
this objective standard that umpires were were sort of held to more closely. But I think it's now at the point where the accuracy is quite good and the uniformity is quite good. And I guess every now and then you still get a zone that feels wrong, that feels cheap, or like someone is being uh, disadvantaged by it. But as long as it's not to the point where you just literally can't predict what's going to happen because there's so much variance from game to game or umpire to umpire, I think it's actually a feature, not a bug. But it it is kind of a hard line to set because, I mean, how do you say exactly where the optimal level of error is? So I accept that that is a difficult line to draw. Can you do me a favor? Sure. Can you please post my Strike Zone article on the Facebook page? <laughs> one of these days, somebody's going to read it. It's one of my favorite things I ever read. Nobody reads it. Nobody likes it. Nobody brings it up. Just keep posting it. Can you post it on the Facebook page for this and every podcast ever? Uh, no, but I will start with this episode. I will post it, and Thanks. we'll see. Okay. All right. So that's that. We will be back with the Marlins Team Preview Podcast tomorrow. You can join the Facebook group and see Sam's article on why there should be no strike zone at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And as we always say, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP for the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Good morning and welcome to episode... (laughs) That's it? That's what? all you're bringing today? What? That was bad. <laughs> it was uh, it was a uh, it was flimsy. Huh. Go again. <laughs> huh. All right.